Back when I was much younger and still living in my parents' home, I had a job that uh, involved two parts. The first part was to be the on-air person on a local radio station, and I would uh, be the announcer for the morning, actually beginning at 5.30 a.m., working till 11.30, and then I was to take a break and go out and sell advertising for the station in the afternoon. Well, I liked the on-air stuff, except for having to be there at 5.30 in the morning, but I couldn't stand the sales part of the job. So the break that I took often was much longer than it should have been, and that break I took at home in my parents' home. Now, I did know something, though. I knew that my mother would be coming home at a certain time, and every day I made sure that my break ended about 10 minutes before she would get home, because... I would get in the car at that time and drive out to um, try to sell advertising. I knew when she'd be coming home. I knew when the break had to end. And I responded accordingly. Now, if my boss from those times is listening, I do apologize. I was not a good employee uh, on that sales portion of this job, and I am sorry for that. But the people hearing Jesus, in, as recorded in this passage, were in a, in a sort of similar state of mind. They were going into Jerusalem, and the understanding was that as they went into Jerusalem, uh, Jesus would establish his throne. Uh, verse 11, while they were listening to this, and that was the story of Zacchaeus that precedes this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And part of the point of this story, uh, part of the point of Jesus telling this story, is to explain that the kingdom wouldn't appear at once, but there would be a time of waiting, and there would be a reaction, a response to this waiting that he was expecting of them. And we see various ways that people responded, or and still do respond, to the coming kingdom of God, and the delay uh, in that in that return of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that this is a season, this is a time, and we do not know the, the time when he will return, but we know that he will. And part of what helps us be patient is what we find in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Part of the reason he delays in bringing the fullness of his kingdom is that there are more people who need to hear and to respond to the good news of the gospel. Now, when Jesus tells them he's going away, he's explaining he's going away but will return as king, he is telling a story that had a parallel in uh, most of these people's memory. In 3 BC, uh, there was a man named Archelaus, a son of Herod, who was uh, slated to be the king over the region of the Jewish people. And they sent a delegation to Herod and said, please, we do not want this man to be our king. So Jesus was telling a story reminding them of that time and in a way saying what it's like when you don't want the king who has been appointed 
and we'll get to that toward the end of the story. So, the first group uh, of people to respond are the people who, to whom the, the um, future king has given some money. One mina, or mina, I'm not sure how to say it, uh, per person. And a mina was a unit of currency worth about three months' wages. So it's not just a little bit of money. It's a decent amount. And what the um, future king wanted them to do while he was gone in that time between his departure and return as king was to invest this money. Invest this money in such a way that it would grow. And two of the servants did just that. They came, when he returned, they came to him, and the first said, I took the one and I made ten more. I worked hard. And the master, now king, was very, very pleased. The second came and said, I worked hard. I have five from the one that you gave me. And the master king was pleased. To the first, he gave authority over ten cities. To the second, authority over five cities. Uh, the point is that before he had wealth, when he was um, the master over this, um, this property. But now he is the king, so he has not just wealth but authority, and he shares the wealth and he shares the authority. It's interesting here that the, the servants who invested this money, there's no indication that they had to give that money back. In fact, when we see his response to um, the, the one who didn't do so well, uh, who has his saved up, um, the master king says, give that one to the man who has 10. So they got to keep that money that was actually the master's money in the first place. So they got, they got wealthy. They got wealth from this interaction. They also got authority through this interaction, authority over these cities. And in the Matthew 25 uh, parable, which is similar to this, um, it says, come share your master's happiness. They get to share the master's happiness, the, the master's glory. And Jesus, in referring to this and, and uh, causing us to think of his own reign in this, uh, reminds us that we get to share in our master's glory, the glory of the kingdom of God, the joy of the kingdom of God, the wealth of the kingdom of God, the authority of the kingdom of God. What he is preparing for us is truly far more glorious than we can imagine. And he wants to share his glory, his wealth, his authority with us. It is a beautiful, amazing gift that he is preparing for us, our roles in his kingdom. But then there's the other servant, the one who comes before the master king and says, I am afraid of you. I don't trust you. So I took this mina, mina, and wrapped it in a handkerchief and saved it for you. And he presented it to the master who was not pleased. 
And it's interesting um, to note the master's response. He gives that um, money, that currency, to the first servant who had done well. He gives this third servant no new authority, and the servant shares in no joy or happiness. And why did he respond the way he did? Why did the servant act the way he did? Well, what he says is, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And the master replies, I will judge you by your own words. I will judge you by your own words. By your own perce perception of me, you should have responded differently, even if only through fear. Now, I've read this before, and it wasn't until this time of preparing to preach that something clicked, an, an understanding I found in um, some commentaries that really helped me understand it so much better. Because previously I read this and I thought, well, why would a parable and the person who is representing God be mean? Now, we've seen in some of the other parables that we've looked at through Luke that the, the parable, um, the, they're not always exact comparisons. Uh, we've seen someone who was actually mean in a parable, and, and the idea is how much more than a mean person will God who loves you take care of you? And here, though, I think it is intentional that the master king does represent Jesus, and this person's response to him, does that mean that Jesus there then is unfair? That he takes what he didn't put in and reaps what he didn't sow? That he is a hard man? Well, the new insight I got is that no, it does not mean that. It means that this person thought that's what he was like. He never gave the effort to know who his master really was, what his master was really like. And there are so many people in the world today who either think they know Jesus or don't care to know Jesus because they, what they do think they know is wrong. If this man knew the glory, the generosity of the heart of the master, that the, the master wanted to share his wealth with him, that the master wanted to share his glory with him, that the master wanted to share authority with him, that the master wanted to share joy and glory with him, he would have responded out of a thankful heart, out of a heart of anticipation of how that would all work out. But he saw him incorrectly as a hard man. C.S. Lewis addresses this at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan takes the children to the place of glory and splendor, the place that represents the new heaven and new earth, the kingdom that God will bring. But at that place, they see some unhappy dwarves. Lucy asks Aslan to help them see the glory that was all around them. So Aslan, with a wave of his mane creates a beautiful banquet, the choicest meats, the most beautiful fresh vegetables, the grains that were um, just perfect for eating, perfectly seasoned, uh, the finest of wines uh, presented to these dwarves at a table. And the glory was clear to the children and to Aslan. 
But when the dwarves began to eat, they said, oh, this is awful. We have to eat cow dung and plain old hay and water from a donkey's trough. This is disgusting. Their perception was so skewed to the negative that they couldn't even see the glory or taste or smell or experience the glory that was right there before them. They were prisoners of their own minds, their own ideas, their own imaginings. And so many people today are prisoners of their own imaginings of what the kingdom of God is like. It is vitally important. This is why the church through the decades, through the centuries, has made it a point to pursue orthodox thinking, to pursue correct thinking about who God is, about what God's plans for us are and how we should respond. So many people create ideas in their own minds or hear ideas from some crackpot and they, they go with those. They think this is how it is. So their response to the gospel is a wrong response. Just like this servant who was suspicious of his master when the master did not deserve that suspicion. Make sure you know who Jesus Christ is. Make sure you do the work to understand who he is and what he thinks of you and the truth of his coming kingdom. Then you will better be able to respond appropriately. Now, I'm not sure of this man's fate, just like we've had uh, the say, a similar question in, other, in response to other parables. I don't know if this man um, enters the new kingdom as a, maybe a renewed, with a renewed understanding, or if he is put aside, put away, and never is able to enjoy that kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 3, we read um, that we build, each one who is a believer, in a sense a servant of God, builds their life with uh, various building materials. And if they build with good materials, if they do things that will last for eternity, they will take those things with them into eternity, the glory, the wealth, the authority, the joy. But if they build foolishly on things that only work in this world, in this kingdom, then when they enter, they will enter with all of their things burned up. Nothing will be left. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So they will enter the kingdom, but without much without much remaining from their life on this earth. In Matthew 25's uh, similar parable to this one, um, we read that though that that servant was thrown outside into darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, not sure if he weeps, gnashes his teeth and then comes back in, or if it means that he is separated from the kingdom forever. But we do know the fate of those who opposed the kingdom. 
I almost didn't preach this parable because this seems so harsh. Verse 27, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Remember, this is a parable. It sounds like this um, new king is gleeful in killing these folks, and we don't believe that God is gleeful in um, appointing some to judgment. And I, I have to say that some of the commentators I read for this sermon, uh, some of the sermons I read for this sermon, um, were very concerned about this, so much so that they said, well, this is one of those passages you have to preach against. In other words, the Bible is wrong on this, and you need to help people understand that the Bible is wrong. Or you can choose to ignore it and never preach on it, because we don't like the word that it seems to be giving us. And I, uh, that was my temptation initially, but I um, realized that I had committed to teaching all the parables of Luke, and sometimes it just takes doing the work in order to understand what the parable is saying so that you can have uh, a good um, grasp of the message it has for us. And I will never preach against Scripture. It says what it says because God wants it to say what it says. And uh, another thing that happened during this week is I started uh, the Bible in One Year program uh, that Nikki Gumbel has put out, and uh, many of the readings in that were from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is filled with harsh, harsh judgment. And when we acknowledge that Jesus is the king, we acknowledge that he has authority. And it is appropriate for the king to mete out judgment. Now, we also have talked in recent weeks about the fact that God allows us to choose, in a sense, if we are not willing to be his subjects, if we are not willing to come under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he does not force that upon us, and that is what judgment is about. The, the choice that the person makes to separate from God's judgment, and I believe that is what is being spoken of here. So what we see through this parable is three responses. Those who accept the reign of the king, trust him, and live for him, and thereby prepare for themselves, as he prepares with them, a glorious eternity. There is the, also the, those who are subject to the king, but who don't trust the king, and their lives will not be filled with glory or joy. They may work for the king grudgingly, or they may hide in a handkerchief, like the third servant hid his mina in that handkerchief. They may do nothing for the kingdom because they don't trust the king. And then there are those who refuse the king. So this parable presents for us an invitation and a warning, an invitation to join the king in his glorious reign, to live our lives now as those who are preparing for this glorious kingdom, investing our time and talents and treasure into the work of this kingdom. It's an invitation to uh, renew our minds and so that we understand how loving and gracious and glorious this king is. And it's an invitation for us to choose 
to be part of this glorious, wonderful kingdom. And it is also a warning, a warning against taking this glorious call lightly, a warning against failing to trust the goodness of Jesus Christ, and a warning to those who would choose not to be subjects of his kingdom. His kingdom is glorious. His kingdom is eternal. His kingdom is what the human heart was created to enjoy. Don't, don't deny the invitation. Receive the invitation to enter the joy that is being prepared for us in the kingdom of God under the reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.